This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast brought to you by Fly Racing. Uh, My name is Neil Morrison and I'm glad to say I'm joined today by my guests, Mr. David Emmett of Motormatters.com and Mr. Adam Wheeler of On Track and Road Frame to discuss a pretty sad and somber Italian Grand Prix that we saw. Um, now, before we get into the uh, the details, gentlemen, how do I find you today, Mr. David? You doing okay? Uh, I'm not doing so bad. Could do with some more sleep, but at least the sun is shining. Very nice. And Adam, looks like uh, you're not wearing any or many layers uh, today. Temperatures obviously picked up a little bit in Spain. Yeah, it's particularly sweaty, as you might know, in Barcelona at the moment, Neil, which doesn't bode too well for the forecast for the upcoming Catalan Grand Prix. Um, and of course, you know, we're missing a certain Steve English, who's uh, been fully absorbed in the superbike world. And, um, you know, I'm sure he's running a few errands, finally being able to get back to his base in Ireland. So we'll let him off this once. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Steve English uh, coming at you this week, I'm sure, with the World Superbike Show, with all of this action from Estoril. And now, gents, let's get on to uh, the affairs that we saw in the Italian Grand Prix. Obviously, this is a pretty somber weekend, um, difficult for everyone uh, on Sunday, for sure. I'm sure you guys were no exception. Uh, sad news of um, the death of Jason de Pasquier, 19-year-old uh, Swiss rider competing in Moto3. Um, obviously had that horrible crash in qualifying on Saturday, um, but the news uh, came through on Sunday that um, he had basically lost his his struggle um, to uh, to recover from those pretty desperate injuries that he uh, sustained. Um, I mean, David, it was a it was a really tough day, wasn't it? And um, you know, it kind of put things into perspective. Yeah, yes. I mean, it's my it, it it's the fourth fatality that I've seen. Well, I suppose the fifth, really, because there was Peter Lenz at um, Indianapolis as well. Um, so yeah, the fifth time someone died at a racetrack that I was at or that I was reporting on, and it doesn't get any better. Um, it doesn't get any more. It doesn't get any easier. Um, but this is exactly the kind of accident that is completely well you can't prevent you can't stop um if a rider falls in front of another bike and gets hit by another bike then the just sort of simple physics dictates that they it's going to end very very badly um and unfortunately it did uh so yeah there's not a lot to you you can say other than that it's the tragedy of bi- of bike racing and you know the, a harsh reminder that this is really is a dangerous sport no matter how much we try to make it safer yeah absolutely um adam i mean Jason DePasquier was in his second year in the, the World Championship uh, riding for KTM. We definitely saw a pretty distinct uh, improvement from him going from 2020 into 2021. I think he had scored points in, in every race um, so far this season up to the Italian Grand Prix. Um, I mean, it's safe to say that he was kind of on a, an upward trajectory. Yeah, he was one of the riders, really, that was not at the beginning of the curve, Neil, in Moto3. But uh, like you say, there were signs of progress being made. And of course... Being Swiss, you know, that was always a little bit of a distinction, wasn't it? Um, you know, obviously friends of Thomas Luti and even in the motocross world, you know, the, there's the, the leading motorcycle athletes in that country all seem to either know each other or have some sort of connection. Um, so it was, uh, you know, he, he was a, a name I think people would have had on their radar slightly. But, um, I mean, one thing I would like to say is that 
yeah, like David says, the fourth fatality that he's sort of seen in, in motorcycle racing and, you know, it's the fourth one in MotoGP since the start of the century. And, you know, it, I don't want to sound out of order, but it almost seems inevitable that something serious was going to happen sooner or later, especially in Moto3 with the marginal differences between the speeds and the close proximity of, of the riders. I mean, how many races have we seen in that category where the action is gripping and it's exhilarating, but it's also extremely perilous because one mistake in front of 10 to 12 to 15 other riders is, is going to carry these kind of consequences. Um, you know, I'm not saying there's anything you can do about it. Uh, there's not anything you can really fix. But, you know, people and I, I think fans and of course the riders, you know, should be well aware of, of you know, this is a, the most extreme reminder you can get of how kind of dangerous the sport is. Um, and I think, you know, we see far too many crashes from riders all through the classes. I mean, what was it, a ridiculous amount you said the other the other week now on the podcast in Le Mans? Um, you know, even in changeable circumstances, it doesn't mean the crashes are any less painful or less uh, have potential for disaster. Um, and we, we're so accustomed to seeing these riders bounce up. You know, sometimes they're still tumbling and they're already on their feet heading towards the motorcycle through the gravel. And, you know, uh, this was a, a big wake up call, I think, you know, of how, how kind of, like I said, perilous uh, Grand Prix is. Yeah, I mean, the, the, they have or we have made racing much safer. Um, the, the, there's much more runoff. Uh, there is the protective gear is just amazing nowadays. The we've got airbags everywhere, just about everywhere where it counts. Um, the the you know the, the whole thing's been made much uh, uh, safer, but at the same time, racing has been made much much closer. And uh, you know the closer that bikes are, the more likely someone is going to fall in front of another rider. And in fact, I mean, what amazes me is that so often uh, riders do fall off in front of other riders, and the other riders all manage to avoid them. Uh, we saw it, for example. Austria last year um, where riders are just sort of you know going past others left and right and managing to miss um, which is you know an amazing piece of control obviously yeah, they are the best riders in the world including in these um, circumstances but uh, yeah I mean there are just sometimes where you where it will go wrong and it can't you you know it, it doesn't miss I mean uh, shameless plug time but I wrote a, a story for the telegraph website that went online actually you know first thing saturday morning even before de basquiat had his crash uh analyzing you know was was the speed in MotoGP too high and you know the fatalities that we had seen in grand prix racing i think two of them had been through impacts with other riders uh dojiro kato was the last rider to actually make contact with a track um you know and lose his life and then Suzuka disappeared from the World Championship as a consequence. Um, you know, we've been talking about how close the walls are in Jerez. Uh, there was even, even some talk about safety marginally at Le Mans. Um, you know, and again, Mugello, there was uh, questions by yourself, Dave, to some of the riders about the proximity of even the, the inside wall going into Turn 1. Um, you know, so it... It kind of, uh, the tragedy of the weekend reminded that safety and, and danger are not limited to just immovable objects. You know, it's, it's something that's very much present at all times on the track. And um, watching riders fall repeatedly throughout the weekend, you know, should not make us forget that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you made a good point there, Adam. We have had some real close calls in recent years. You think back to, um, I think it was Nea Bastianini's crash at uh, the Red Bull Ring last year. And basically the entire Moto2 field had to duck around. And I think a few riders actually hit his machine, Hafi Siren being one of them. But 
miraculously. Uh, obviously, he sustained injuries, but none of them were life-threatening. Um, and I think back to, you know, Moto3, there was a, a massive crash on the exit of the final turn at Mizano back in 2018. And I mean, it was, I think six guys were caught up in that. It was miraculous that no one was badly hurt, never mind killed in that one, you know. So, yeah, there have been um, yeah some very close calls recently. Um, it's interesting that uh, that you mentioned safety there, Adam, because, um, you know, with the speeds that we see at Mugello, Brad Binder um, setting a really eye-catching top speed on the main straight. Um, we are, you know, kind of asking a little bit about the track safety. Um the walls are quite perilously close in some positions on this track. But um, as you said, David, this was just a, a crash that you know could have happened anywhere, really. Um, and it's just one of those things that's a, a rider's worst nightmare, that you, you fall off the inside of your bike while you're leant over. And um, rather than just going straight off into the gravel, you're kind of, well, pushed back into the, the kind of the track. Uh, I have a right. I mean, I've got a question for the two of you because, um, I mean, Adam, obviously you spend a lot of time in motocross and uh, Neil, I know you follow road racing. Now, um, certainly racing on the roads, there's a completely different attitude to, uh, uh, to danger. I mean, it's so obvious that the, the danger is such a part of the sport. Um, so, you know, to you, Neil, how do you feel about that? But, but, um, first, Adam, motocross. I mean, motocross, I get the impression, not watching a loss of it, that what you see a loss of at motocross is uh, people coming down with spinal injuries just because of the great heights that they're sort of falling from. But um, there don't seem to be too many fatalities. How How is that kind of risk seen in, in the MXGP paddock? Yeah, you're right, Dave. I think the primary fear is possibly paralysis more than, you know, uh, I would say death, you know, as, as a like an extreme uh, version of, of that fear that on that scale of fear, um, you know, that we've seen, you know, unfortunately, too many cases of that. Uh, but like you say, it's uh, a question of hitting the ground head first, chest first. Uh, in fact, the, the last fatality I can remember, I think we talked about this on the Paddock Note show um, on, on Sunday evening, was just uh, a youngster in the EMX um, European Championship. Um, you know, it was believed some riders had landed on him. So it was a similar situation to, to Grand Prix where, you know, the mitigating factor is contact from another racer. But in fact, it was actually just an accident on a, on a steep downhill section. So... Um, personal injury is is very very prominent in motocross and supercross uh, you know it's an accepted part of the game and you know you just pray I mean I can remember another example as well in supercross uh, Trey Canard you know um, yeah, yeah, 250 champion being landed on on the first lap I can't remember him it was in Los Angeles um, you know being landed on a height from a, from a, another motorcycle I mean it was a horrific accident uh, you know a rider's worst nightmare um, so the, the proximity thing with the other races is a very big factor, but then also just the contact with the ground. Um, yeah, it's very real. It's, uh, and pretty scary. And I think, you know, riders really need to, uh, have a real absence of imagination or some kind of suspension of belief to, to, you know, do what they do in MSGP, certainly. Yeah. And I think with the roads, um, obviously, um, you know, if you go to an event like the Isle of Man TT, death, 
sad to say it, but it is kind of part and parcel of that event. Um, and uh, you definitely don't get used to it. It doesn't make it any easier when it does happen. Um, but it is something that you, I think, accept as part of the game. Whereas with Grand Prix racing, with MotoGP, um, with the safety advances that we've seen in recent times, uh, you definitely don't um, go into a race weekend thinking, will all of these guys make it out of here. Whereas I think when you go to the Isle of Man TT or sometimes if you go to the Ulster Grand Prix, you are a little bit on edge. I certainly am anyway, um, especially when you're watching trackside and you see just how prevalent the dangers are. Um, and that, again, I stress that's not to say that you, you don't become detuned to it. You know, it's still very effective when something tragic does happen. Um, but um, but yeah, I think also it, it's it's fairly rare in, in road racing that you have people under 20 um, riding at the TT for example or, or riding at the, the, the top level in, in the Ulster Grand Prix or, or, or kind of national road races it tend to be a little bit older the riders there and there's something just about the Pasquier being 19 years old so young um, that uh, it's just quite difficult to, to get your head around quite difficult to accept um, and I think that's you know that's what is one of the, the many things that makes this uh just a really sad kind of shitty thing to have happened guys going back to Mugello what do you I mean there's no precedent for the way to handle a situation like that and there's no kind of formula to follow the timing I mean we saw the Moto2 riders you know kind of being semi-debriefed in the part Fermo for their TV interviews that you know this tragedy had happened and De Pesquier had passed away um, and then we had the minute silence uh, somewhat inexplicably before the MotoGP race um, you know, I'm not saying there was a right way or a wrong way to handle that situation, but it seems that uh, from what I've seen, at least on social media, the universal opinion is that having that minute silence before the, the Grand Prix race, the MotoGP race was a mistake. Um, what, what's your kind of opinion on that? Maybe some sort of dedication uh, this weekend in Catalonia would have been a little bit more fitting. It wouldn't have been so raw. It would have allowed people to have a little bit more distance or to have a, a, a more of a grip on their emotions yeah uh, the trouble is it's different for everyone everyone deals with grief in their own way in, in a different way uh, and certainly you saw Pekka Banyaya uh, you saw um, Danilo Petrucci really struggle with it um, but Jack Miller was sort of straight up to Mike Trimby and Erta saying you know are we going to have a, a minute silence almost demanding a minute silence um, and so some people need it other people need anything but it uh, I don't think there is a, I mean, no matter what you do, and I think there were several riders who actually made this point, which is extremely valid, you know, doesn't matter what you do, it, it doesn't bring Jason back, Jason's dead, that's it. Uh, there's nothing you can do to bring him back. It's just about for the living, the way that they deal with it. Um, yeah, how do you how do you actually cope with that? That, that, that becomes quite, yeah, I mean, there, I don't think there are any good answers, it's as simple as that. Yeah, I agree with Dave. I mean, no matter what you do, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. I mean, if you have the minute silence after the MotoGP race, for example, um, you could be accused of um, putting these tragic events to one side um, in order for the show to go on without paying it the kind of recognition that it deserves. Um, and, you know, I could see, I could foresee criticisms coming in saying, oh, you know, they're only interested in having the spectacle without having um, some kind of, uh, some kind of recognition of what happened to Jason. Um, I mean, the news was out there um, and, you know, 
the likelihood is that MotoGP riders would have heard about it uh, prior to the race. Um, I've, I have no idea how they managed to, in the space of 10 minutes, have that minute silence and then jump on their bikes and, you know, get ready, get into the frame of mind needed to race. I mean, it's just uh, quite incredible that they managed to do that. Alicia Spargo was, was interesting talking afterwards, just saying he had no explanation. It was just like a, almost going in autopilot. Um, but watching, you know, from the press room, it was, I mean, it was really emotional. Um, and watching the MotoGP riders go up to Jason's team, go up to Yusi Yamanaka, his teammate, and offer their condolences, offer hugs or handshakes or, you know, slaps on the back. I mean, it's... Um, yeah, I have no idea how they managed to just to go back to their bikes and put on their helmets because I couldn't imagine a frame of mind further uh, from the one that's necessary to compete at this level. Um, but in the circumstances, I mean, I don't see many other alternatives. You have to acknowledge it, you have to recognize it, you have to pay respect. You know, the world's eyes are focused on the, the start of the race. Um and yeah, it's 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 something that you know the the, the podium finishers MotoGP. They all said, whether you like it or not, it's part of our job. We have to do this. Yeah, I mean the the, the um, I suppose the thing which really impresses me most about you know motorcycle races in general is their ability, and in fact, elite athletes in general is their ability to compartmentalize. So that's to lock away all of these uh, irrelevances, if you like, the things which aren't strictly relevant to. Uh, uh, going fast right now and trying to win a race uh, into a little sort of a, a dark corner of their mind and then opening it up later again. I mean, we see, you know, riders going through all sorts of personal issues and traumas, um, uh, uh, divorces, kids, whatever, um, and then turning up the track, getting on with business, uh, uh, locking it away and, do it and, and acting as if nothing has happened. So to an extent, I think it has to be done that way. I think this is the uh, one of the most extreme sort of forms of that, if you like. Uh, and I think it would be fair to say that it cost um, Pekka Banyai any chance of victory because he was so upset by the whole... Um, yeah, but by the whole minute silence that he lost concentration and in a, a difficult part of the track where there was a strong wind around, uh, around the Arabiatas, you know, just basically got blown off course and, and ended up losing the front and crashing. Yeah, 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 that's true, Dave. And just before we go into the discussion about the race, I just wanted to ask you both your opinions. Um, obviously, no right or wrong answers on this, but we did see a bit of a diversion on opinion as to whether uh, we should have continued going ahead after we learned of the severity of Jason's condition. I mean, Adam, for you, was it was it correct to continue um, qualifying on Saturday then racing on Sunday in light of the severity of, of you know Jason's injuries? My first reaction is to say yes. You know, I mean, um, pick whatever kind of excuse you want. Uh, riders saying, you know, he lost his life doing something he liked. Uh, maybe him and his family would have not preferred the race to be cancelled, uh, to, you know, not extend the gravity of the situation anymore, uh, to pay dedication to, you know, to Jason in that way. Um, I think we saw a similar kind of emotion around Luis Salom in Catalonia in 2016. Uh, I, I think... Things should have gone ahead, but like I said, on the dedication aspect of it, um, I think it could have been far more subtle not to impede in the, you know, the psychology of the riders. And I think, you know, we'll talk about Fabio Quattararo in a minute because, um, you know, we're almost going to do it on this podcast by skipping over 
you know, the issue to talk about the racing and the championship picture and how MotoGP is now moving on to round seven this weekend, you know, only a few days later. Uh, I, I just think it could have been far more subtle. I mean, a sign could have been shown at the front of the grid. There could have been something shown on TV graphics. Uh, you know, the podium afterwards was also a place, no champagne. Um, you know, it, like you said, it directly contributed to Pekka Bangnaya's uh, troubled mindset and infected his race result and therefore his his sporting aspect uh, in, in the World Championship. And, uh, you know, have riders like Danilo Petrucci saying he felt dirty afterwards. Um you know, uh, I think uh, every, every rider to a T said how difficult those 23 laps were on Sunday. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they should have raced. Uh, they had to race, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, they, it, things could have maybe have gone a bit better. But like I said, there's no precedent to handle it. Uh, I mean, there are no good answers. I mean, you know, there are, there are no good answers. I mean, perhaps maybe... Uh, having the minute silence at 12.30 rather than 12.45 would give everyone just a little bit longer to cope with it. Um, the whole... Yeah, the whole situation was just very was very difficult. I mean, you are yeah damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, uh, there, I'm I'm not sure that Moto that anybody that anybody gains anything from cancelling the racing. Um, you know, so yeah, just having the racing is better than not having the racing. But I don't. Uh, yeah, like I say, there are there are just no uh, there are just no good answers to that. And what about you? Uh, you know, I'm I'm really conflicted. Um, part of me thinks that it's it's kind of very insensitive in the extreme to expect riders to go back out in FP4 after the images that they had seen on the on the television. As I said before, no idea how they managed to get themselves in the right frame of mind for the race. But then there is part of me which thinks that. I mean, we've got a race coming up in five days' time in, in Barcelona. Um, and you do have to get back on the, get back on the, the horse. You know, it's, uh, I mean, it's a cold thing to say, but, you know, Franco Morbidelli said, you know, life is a bitch, life's a bastard, but you have to, you have to move on. That's just the way life is. And I, yeah. And I feel kind of, I feel a bit dirty, like Danilo Petrucci said he did, um, even saying that. But uh, yeah, I think I think racing on Sunday maybe was the right thing to do. But again, I can completely, completely understand uh, people that disagree with that. And as you said earlier, Dave, everyone has their own way of, of dealing with this kind of news, uh, grieving in a certain respect. Yeah, I mean, there's, the, the, yeah, the, there's no way, there's no good way of doing it. But also, I mean, it, whatever you do, it still leaves you with just a, a a really bad sort of taste in your mouth. There's no, um, even though the race itself was actually quite interesting, it still, um, it didn't feel. You know, it was hard to enjoy it. It was, uh, and it was hard to be enthusiastic about it or enthusiastic about sort of the whole affair. It was, um, it, you know, like it was very much the old Banquo's ghost thing hanging around there, ruining the, uh, uh, you know, ruining the party. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, well, that kind of brings us, uh, to a close to the first part of this, uh, episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. Um, obviously everyone, uh, involved in the show would like to extend their deepest sympathies to the friends, family and team of Jason DePasquier. 
uh, bright young talent definitely taken from us far too soon. Um, now on to the more trivial matters of uh, the racing that we saw at the Italian Grand Prix. Um, we mentioned it a little bit just before the break, but obviously the uh, the minute silence that we had around 10 minutes before the MotoGP race start um, had a, a pretty severe effect on, on some of the riders. Um, one of them being uh, Francesco Bagnaia, uh, who was one of the pre- pre-race favourites. Um, fantastic pace throughout free practice, uh, second on the grid, uh, we almost expected him to be leading um, early on, um, and he did manage to do that. However, um, as he revealed after the race, David, his mind just wasn't really quite in the zone. No, I mean he he, uh, he was extremely upset in the uh, in his debrief, um, and he really just didn't want to talk about the race. He just didn't want to talk about it at all. He said he found it very difficult to concentrate, didn't want to uh, ride. Uh, He told Davide Tardozzi, uh, the team boss, that he didn't want to ride. Um, But the point is, you know, they don't have any choice. If one rides, then they all have to ride, which is what we've seen in the past when uh, riders have have tried to have uh, boycotts over safety um, if someone is going to go out and score points then everyone else has to go out as well so uh, it's very difficult but yeah Pe- Peko led out um, got a good start was leading the race and looked like he was pushing on but like I said earlier got caught out at Arabiata the, the, the wind was coming from underneath it pushed them a little bit wide um, uh, I think um uh, Fabio Quattararo explained also that the in the safety commission they'd already talked about the curb there, which seemed to be a little bit a little bit lower than the track. So coming back onto the track, you had to sort of uh, pay, you, you had a, a, a bit of a step up, and uh, the the whole thing sort of lack of concentration, bit of wind, uh, and a, and a slightly more difficult manoeuvre um, meant that Peko lost the front, washed out, and um, uh, uh, yeah, basically ended up losing a lot of points to Fabio Quattararo. We've praised Peko to the, the high heavens on podcasts previous to this one, Adam. Um, I think you in particular have been one of his, uh, you know, one of his more vocal uh, supporters and, and people that have been impressed by him this year. Um, can we just write this off, this crash, as an exceptional circumstance? Um, or... Do you think this is uh, in some way a sign of, um, I don't know, I don't want to say weakness, but um, it basically failed to get himself mentally prepared where, where others were, were able to do that? Yeah, I think you've got a point there, Neil. It's, um, you know, it's all about what kind of peck are we going to see, you know, a few days later here in Catalonia. Um, you know, uh, if you contrast his dealings or his words with the press, which are very forthright and honest, uh, with somebody like Brad Binder, for example, who was pretty much acknowledged, you know, the seriousness of the situation in the weekend and the sadness of it, but then also talks about the race, you know, from a very positive aspect and very much like it was just another Grand Prix. I mean, there's a certain kind of psychology and, and, you know, mentality there. Um, and you can see that Banaya was probably the most affected. Uh, maybe it was a, as a consequence also of his performance and, you know, his his result. I mean, there's a lot of factors involved. Um, I'll be really curious to see what kind of racer emerges, you know, in Catalonia and then in the following couple of races. Uh, you know, it's, it, it is something that's that serious that it can throw, you know, somebody's championship. I mean, who knows what kind of thoughts and doubts are going through his mind at the moment. Or he might have sealed it off and said, right, I need to get back into the championship chase now because... 
uh, Quartararo is going to be quite formidable, um, you know, in Barcelona. And, you know, the Yamaha has shown itself um, to, to be an extremely capable motorcycle this season. Uh, to really dethrone the Ducatis after three years, you know, at Mugello is quite something. Absolutely, Adam. And following on from that point, I mean, um, the Yamahas obviously have two or had two principal weaknesses in 2021. Top speed, very obvious one. Uh, but the second one was the starts because we really saw them struggle get, getting themselves off the line. Um, and I'm not just talking about Maverick Finales. I think Quadraro, um, Rossi, Morbidelli as well all had problems in the, the first five races. But David, it seems that um, Yamaha have managed to, to put that right. And that was really notable on Sunday. Uh, yeah, exactly. As uh, Maverick Vinales pointed out about his teammate, you know, Fabio Quattraro only lost one position at the start, and it is quite a long run from the um, uh, starting line down to the first corner. Uh, they now have the whole the front hole shot device. They have the rear hole shot device, which basically locks down the rear. Um, the trouble with that is that the, the the front is still quite high, so you still get a certain amount of wheelie. Uh, they now have the front hole shot device as well, which I presume works much the same as the other. Um, uh, the, the the other factories where it just locks down the front forks. Uh, it, you know, you brake hard, compress the forks. It locks down the forks. The whole bike is much much lower, uh, and so you just get a much stronger, um, uh, much stronger start. Um, uh, uh, Quattraro, I think Fabio Quattraro said, you know, it's much better from from basically from zero to one fifty, especially in second gear, which is that really that first acceleration as you're heading down to the line. Um, it's going to make a big difference. At uh, Barcelona as well, because we all remember the you know like last year Maverick Vinales on the starting line, really just going backwards from the front row almost, um, and uh, yeah, it 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 means that they it basically meant that Quattararo had fewer places to make up after the start, and that was really really important, and was certainly a contributing factor to him be just being able to dominate the race. I mean, while Quasararo certainly now is, you know, uh, established himself firmly as a championship contender, um, on a tangent for a second, what's your opinion on on the start scenes we saw with Bastianini and Zarco? Um, that that was quite uh, hard to to believe, wasn't it? I mean, who who was at fault there? I mean, for me, it has to be perhaps Bastianini. Um, okay, so he's a rookie dealing with carbon brakes. As Alex Rins explained, you know, the riders like to pump the brakes extra hard going towards the grid so that when they're dashing down to the first corner, especially one like San Donato, um, you know, you're going to have to, you know, make sure you're going in there with full confidence, you know, and you're stopping power. Um, I mean, I would say that uh, both in some ways were a fault. Um, Bastianini clearly wasn't paying close enough attention to what was going on just ahead. But at the same time, for Zarko to do it there, um, it wasn't at the side of a track. It was pretty much not quite in the middle, but it certainly wasn't at the side. I think it maybe wasn't the most appropriate place to be doing that um, on the start line. Um, and, uh, you know, people managed to do this in every um, warm-up lap that they have this year to warm up the brakes and make sure, as you say, everything's up to, to working temperature. For, for for me, Zarco seemed to to not do that at the right place. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I suppose I have some sympathy with that, but I mean, it is Bastianini is the rider behind it and it's his responsibility and they know, they all know that this is going to happen. Uh, of course, the, the problem is that they, uh, the riders now have more and more to do just before the start. They always uh, brake heavily before the start to get some heat into the into the carbon discs because they have to be able to stop for that first corner. Uh, those discs need to be up to, uh, up to temperature. Uh, they also want some temperature in the front tyre. Uh, 
um, because if you cruise a little bit too much on the uh, on the warm up lap, the, the you can lose a little bit of uh, of heat out of the tire. So by uh, forcing some load into it, you've got that little bit more grip that you can use to actually turn through the first corner. Um, uh, then there's the hole shot devices, uh, which they also need to use the front uh, the, 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 the front brake to load the front suspension and then lock it in place. But generally, they do that as they arrive at their um, uh, uh, at their grid slot. Um, but it means they have a lot more to do. I think it was... I think it was mostly inexperience on the part of Bastianini by riding too close to Zarco. Um, but yeah, perhaps Zarco could have been a little bit more considerate in where he did it. But it's where everyone, I mean, as you approach the grid, this is where people are going to do it. You have to be, you have to know that it's going to happen. And it's something you don't need to do in Moto2 because you've got steel discs. So you don't need to heat the discs in the same way that you do in MotoGP. So I think it's a, you know, very much a rookie mistake. Yeah, very much so. Um, now going back to Quartararo, we spoke about Yamaha's whole shot device, but this was Quartararo's race. He was stunning, absolutely tremendous. Um, I think his two moves on, on Zarco, um, the first coming at uh, Civelli was wonderful to watch. It looked like Lorenzo back in his heyday, um, operating at the highest level. Uh, his pace was phenomenal. New race record, I think 15 seconds faster than the previous fastest ever race we had at Mugello. Um, I mean, he was simply untouchable. Maybe Banyaya would have had an answer for him, but, um, but around one of the more physical tracks on the calendar, Adam, um, you know, Quadraro was just lights ahead of everyone else. Yeah, Neil, and he's also buried a little bit of the doubts over the arm pump issue. Um, I mean, it could still surface like it has done for him in the past, uh, you know, at the most inopportune moment. But uh, like I say, with Barcelona now coming up, Saxon Ring, where the Yamahas are not going to face any kind of uh, speed disadvantage whatsoever, um, and Assen as well, which, you know, is a, is a track sort of custom made for a rider of Quasararo's abilities. Uh, you know, he has a maybe a Joanne Mir-esque kind of stint of the calendar approaching where he could really throw some points down and, and make a nice gap. I think he's on 24 points ahead now, which is almost one race. And before you know it, we're going to be in July and half the season's done. Yeah, exactly. So Barcelona, Barcelona was his first podium. Assen was his second podium in 2019, his rookie year. He's a very, um, not a different rider, but he's a much more confident rider. He's a much more complete rider. Um, I think his difficulties last year, he learned a lot from his difficulties last year from uh, leading the championship, um, uh, suffering a bit of hubris, thinking, okay, you know, I've got this in the bag, uh, and then running into sort of the bike not doing what he wanted to do. Now he's much more focused on what he can do uh, the, the bike is definitely better uh, but I think he's a more complete rider and I think he's a really um, uh, I think he's he has to be the favourite at Barcelona he has to be the favourite in Assen um, and if he wins those two then we're in a really really different situation uh, Saxon Ring I don't know you don't really have to worry about top speed uh, but it's such a peculiar track um, and if I remember correctly he didn't have a he, he was sort of you know very much mid-pack in 2019 when he rode there so yeah no he was he was fast but he crashed on the first lap I think uh, but he, he did he did have podium pace though for no, sure well, they, yeah, well yeah in that case if he's got if, if he was fast there as well then uh, there's the experience and he, he really becomes the, the, the man to beat and uh, the Ducatis are not going to go around, well around um, uh, uh, around the Saxon ring. It's it's all long corners, and the Ducati is much better, but it still struggles with turning. Or Assen, I guess you could say. Sorry, Ad. 
Yeah, and I'll go as far to say that I think Mugello is probably one of, if not his his best victories. I mean, not only was the performance itself emphatic, but you know the, the you know the mental or the circumstances around the race uh, were a big test for a rider that's still young, uh, still twenty one, um, and has shown himself to be quite volatile. To him, you know, in terms of the ups and downs of MotoGP, uh, he wears his emotions very much uh, not so much on his sleeve, but on on a large flag, sort of you know stuck behind his head. So it's uh, you know for for a guy to be able to be mature enough to keep focus for that amount of time I think that's a big uh, signal of intentions for his aims on the championship and we have to say that these recent performances have come after the issues at Hareth I mean it's been a pretty emphatic response to those arm pump issues that he had and did he not have those or had he not had those issues at, at Hareth we'd be looking at a guy that's nearly 50 points ahead of the rest in the championship He's he's becoming the the rider that Yamaha I think hoped they they had signed you know at the yeah, at the end of two thousand and and twenty. On the other hand, if he hadn't had it uh, had the arm pump issues at uh, Jerez, he might have had them at Mugello or he might have had them at Assen, which are two other tracks which are really really bad for for arm pump. Um, I asked him in the press conference, you know, you're glad you had the arm pump. Uh, well, I asked him. Uh, Neil asked uh, told me I should ask him that. Um, uh, so uh, yeah, and he said, yeah, yeah, the, the timing was perfect. Also, um, because we also saw that Alicia Spargo had arm pump surgery after Le Mans, which was really the wrong time to have it because the, the, his arms weren't really healed by the time we got to um, uh, Mugello. So he struggled a lot. You know, he had a lot of fluid taken out of his arm um, uh, over the weekend. And perhaps he could have had a stronger uh, result if he'd had arm pump surgery after Jerez rather than af uh, after Le Mans. So I think it was definitely, um, uh, yes, he lost a lot of points. Yes, Fabio Quartararo lost a lot of points at um, uh, Jerez by suffering arm pump but um, he gained a lot um, uh, he he got the problem fixed and I think he's going to be good for the rest of the season going forward and I think it's uh, I, I think it's going to be very good for him in the long term I would just like to clarify that I arrived to the press conference a little bit late and uh, asked whether the question had been asked uh, to Div it's not that I usually go to him to say can you ask this for me please Ah, so he stole the question. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah, oh, oh. yeah, oh yeah. I, I totally stole his question. I totally stole Neil's question. Yeah. Just before we get to the end of uh, the second part of the show, lads, uh, obviously Miguel Oliveira, staggering ride to second place, absolutely sensational. Um, we mentioned on the paddock notes over the weekend about KTM's kind of dramatic improvement, um, not just in terms of top speed, but in terms of how those guys were exiting the corners. Uh, Adam, that new chassis that they brought to the uh, post-race test at Hareth really seemed to, to work wonders. And both Miguel and Brad were, you know, in inside the top five. Miguel's ride was a real thing of beauty. Uh, a, a widely factory, Neil, because Mugello, I, I'm not sure there was a great deal of uh, confidence surrounding KTM going to that circuit. Uh, but obviously they turned up you know with the two factors the new fuel they were running from ETS um, as well as a couple of modifications on the chassis which the riders explained were helping uh, turn the motorcycle the bike has always been very strong on corner entry uh, and hard braking you know which was one factor that helped Paula Spargaro um, pushed to the top of the standings uh, or near the top of the standings last year but uh, they were missing you know um, not quite understeer but just being able to get the bike upright and use a bigger contact patch coming out of the corners and that seems to have been fixed on one of the tracks where you know uh, cornering was key so that was that was a big move, um, and I think you know the horsepower that 
Brad Binder showed uh, through FP3, I think it was, um, to hit, you know, equal the speed record shows that the motorcycle certainly isn't slow. Uh, so a lot of the reservations, yeah, maybe they were unfortunate with Michelin's slight change in the tire allocation for this year, and it took them some time to get up to that. But they've shown uh, they're a factory that can move very quickly to address issues. Um, and I think they're going to need uh, some kind of vindication again at Catalonia this weekend, uh, maybe also in Saxon Ring, just to, to prove that, that that kind of upgrade they found is actually turning the RC16 into a more competitive motorcycle. But Oliveira was a, a fantastic performer. I mean, he's so solid, isn't he? Uh, you know, it's uh, it was his first, I think his third podium in MotoGP, his first of the season, his first of the Red Bull KTM guys. Uh, we've just seen Brad Binder this morning, um, you know, as we're recording the podcast announced on a three-year deal. I don't know what you guys think about that. Is three years quite a lot? It does seem quite a lot. I mean, he's 25 years old, so maybe you're signing him up to be in his MotoGP prime. Um, and he's going to be 10 years with KTM. He's won Grand Prix in every category with, with the manufacturer. Um, but the, you know, KTM suddenly from going from strugglers and, and looking like pretty bad in LaSalle at the start of the season and now looking, you know, slightly brighter. It, well, I mean, firstly, I think the, uh, the, 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 the KTM is, uh, um, the reason they only needed a few small tweaks to make it much more competitive is because the bike is very good as it was. Uh, and you, they, they, they had it a little bit wrong. That's all, you know, they were struggling with this, uh, w- with this asymmetric front tire. Um, that was clearly a disadvantage for them. And they found, they found a different way to go fast. Oh, really a way to get around the asymmetric front tire because they don't have to rely on it so much going into, into the corner. They can now pick the bike up and use corner exit um uh, to, to gain some speed so i think that is like a, a big step forward as for um uh, as for brad binder i mean it not really surprising it's really only a two-year extension because i think he had an option for next year and so this is ktm taking that option and, and giving him another couple of years um it's a little bit longer and I also wonder about their talent pipeline they've got Raul Fernandez coming through uh, they've got Remy Gardner coming through uh, you know Remy and Raul will probably go to Tech 3 next year and if they go to Tech 3 next year um, what do you do with them in 2023 or 2024 um, because to me MIG yeah, Pedro Acosta is on his way as well. But I mean, you know, Acosta has got to have at least one year in Moto too, and probably two. Um, but what about Miguel Oliveira? You know, I mean, uh, Oliveira absolutely deserves a contract just as much as Binder does. He's been uh, outstanding, and they actually make a really good team. But then this is exactly the kind of problem that you're not too worried about having really as a as a factory you know well we've got too many good riders who are we going to get rid of um the the, yeah i mean what a problem to have yeah certainly i can imagine that factories in worse uh conditions worse situations that uh, ktm find themselves in at the moment with that pipeline of talent coming through Um, and we might actually touch on that a little bit more about factories uh, a little bit worse off in the third part of the show but before then quick advertising break Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. 
Okay, welcome back to the final part of uh, this edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, before we get into the winners and losers uh, from the Italian Grand Prix, I want to talk a little bit just about track limits because it was something that uh, unfortunately um, had an effect on the results in Model 3, had an effect on the results in Model 2, and it for maybe a few minutes had an effect on the results in MotoGP. Um, but perhaps we should uh, just clarify a few things that happened there, Dave, because I know you have been speaking to the venerable Mike Webb, race director, uh, in the days after the race. Um, can you explain just a little bit about what was the issue? Um, what was going on? Why were riders being penalised on the final lap of the race? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, obviously they are, race direction and the stewards are much, much stricter on uh, exceeding track limits, uh, especially on the last lap um, uh, anyway. I mean, the, they're much more strict anyway, um, but the last lap always poses, normally uh, exceeding track limits is a, uh, or repeated uh, exceeding of track limits um, uh, gives you a long lap penalty. But obviously you can't give up a long lap penalty on the last lap, um, uh, given that you're actually going be going through the long lap penalty bit a bit again so they have to approach it slightly differently and the other issue is um the, the or the different approach which is in a protocol which we don't get to see you know the protocol is the uh, the basically the set of rules which race direction set for themselves and which the the, the the teams are made aware of but which aren't actually published in the fim rules um but the protocol says that on the last lap uh, you, if you exceed track limits, um, it's not enough to not gain anything. You have to actually lose. Um, so even if you, because we saw it with uh, both Oliveira, we saw it with with um, uh, with Juan Mir. We definitely saw it with uh, uh, Joe Roberts, for whom I think was harshest of all. Um, where you get on the, you get on that little bit of green, um, which is technically exceeding track limits, but uh, you know the, the, if. They would have been gaining sort of you know picoseconds rather than milliseconds um, uh, of time, so it wouldn't have made any material difference to the actual result. Uh, but the rules say you actually have to actively lose, and if you are in close combat, so if you are you know closely contesting a position, and that means you've got two riders you know more or less within each other's slipstream, um, then you have to lead, uh, uh, lose a position. And the reason that, for example, Jean Zarco didn't gain a position was he was too far behind he was just not actually um uh, he, he wouldn't have made it a, a he didn't have a chance of actually making a position if either Oliveira or binder or sorry Oliveira or mir had um uh, uh, had gone wide um if uh if he had been just behind them then he might have gained a position um but uh, you, you know i think he was 0 0.7 or 0 0.8 behind um uh, behind Mir at the end, and you know that that was ne he was never going to gain a position there. Um, but it was just a bit farcical. The whole thing looked a bit farcical, especially the uh, Oliveira and Mir one, where uh, you know they come into Park Ferme and uh, Oliveira is second, and then Oliveira is no longer second; he's third, and Mir is second, and then all of a sudden Mir isn't second; he loses a position again, and he's third again, and then you're trying to figure out right. So you know, are we going to? Here anytime soon where people finished um it's it, when you hear the explanation it makes sense uh but it does look farcical in in my opinion uh, uh by the way dave congratulations for telling us that it's pico seconds i didn't know there's anything less than a millisecond but i knew you'd be a man that wouldn't uh, you know be able to share that information with us 
Um, for me, it's, it's a little bit like the interpretation of the consequence of this ruling. The ruling's there, fair enough, but there's two things you can do. One, that horrible green strip that they like to put on the outskirts of corners, maybe finish it three quarters of the way into a turn. Or, you know, we've seen it also in Red Bull Ring where Jorge Martin last year was affected, where it's kind of, it's cutting into the outside of a turn where a rider's probably full on the gas, uh, trying to manipulate the motorcycle onto a half decent racing line. So, uh, just finish it. Finish it two or three meters before with a green, so that if the rider is running a little bit off, he's going to be doing it consistently, consistently every lap, and there's going to be no kind of uh, room for interpretation down to centimeters. The second thing is you could probably install some sort of warning system, uh, similar to forgive me for saying it, Dave, but football. Whereas uh, maybe Juan Mir or Miguel Oliveira could have been shown some sort of yellow card to say, listen, on the last lap in Mugello, you've hit the track limits. There's your warning. So they know for Catalonia or for the next three to five races, if they exceed or touch the green on the last lap of the following Grand Prix, then they're going to be doctor position or whatever. I think, you know, as the riders pointed out, they've been fighting for the better part of 45 minutes in hot temperatures, uh, you know, in, in exceptional racing circumstances, um, you know, to, to strip a result like that. I think there has to be a little bit more of a human factor. And if you did introduce a warning system, then this would be fair enough. And the rider would know in advance that he can't afford to fuck it up the next time. So therefore, you know, that would seem much fairer. Yeah, that's, that's my rant. I think um, it was uh, quite interesting when Mike Webb uh, spoke to the press um, at Misano last year after the Jorge Martin Model 2 losing the race win incident. Firstly, it was interesting because of the disdain Mike Webb showed for many of us uh, in the fourth estate uh, journalists. Uh, that was quite a joy to behold. Uh, and it was also quite interesting because one of the points that was brought up was that one that you made there, Adam, would it not just be better to extend the curb in places like the exit of turn five at Mugello, like at the exit of turn eight uh, at Austria where Martin was penalized, like at the final, like it was at the final corner of Misano? Because if you, what you were saying there, Adam, if you just extend the curb and then have it stop and have the grass start, then you have a very clear it's clear for everyone to see where the cutoff is. And if you actually exceed the curb further down the track, then you'll be on the grass. So you'll be losing time anyway. So yeah, I think there are places on the calendar where the track limits thing really makes a lot of sense. Like you think about the final turn in Austria, for example, um, because you can't have grass there because so many people, uh, have the potential to run off there. And basically the, the barrier is quite dangerously close. It's, it's there for safety reasons, the tarmac. Um, but in places like this, the outside of turn five, like the outside of turn eight, entry to turn nine in Austria, you just think like, it's pointless. Why, why, why have you painted it that way? Why don't you just extend the curb so there's none of this silliness for, as you say, the gaining of picoseconds? Yeah, I mean, the, there are real cases where safety is paramount. I mean, they've already moved the curb in Austria in the final corner uh, because that wall is too close because Austria is a dangerous track and we shouldn't be racing there, but Red Bull pay an awful lot of money. Um, and they, they, they can't, I mean, literally it becomes the, the further you move that, that, uh, or you start painting that line, the faster people go through there and the more chance of them actually hitting the barrier if they crash there. Um, but the, yeah, I mean, definitely there are a few places. I think also turn five, turn five, the, the, the exit of turn five, um, it, the wall there is also quite close because of the hill. Um, but the point where they're actually running, 
straight uh, I can't remember I think it was Juan Mir who made the point that um, uh, or maybe it was Maverick Vinales when you're when you're actually running across there you're just running across um, even if there was grass there you are already so upright at that point um, that you would run across the grass completely safely so it wouldn't uh, you know it it doesn't add anything to safety to to have that uh, uh have the white point the the white line painted the way it is um but it's always going to be different and the, the point is i mean you have to have track limits at some point um otherwise people are just going to use as much of possible uh, uh, as much as possible of it to gain an advantage just put grass there dave i mean don't put any curb because i mean if, it'll be, if you're going to run off in the track then you're not going to run off yeah, but what happens when you put grass there is people lose traction on the rear and um, uh, get flicked off the bike and the bike ends up on the track and we end up with extremely dangerous uh, situations. So that's, that's trouble. Or, uh, you know, it is grass and people sort of, uh, every, especially some of those little little grass sections, they go across them and across them, across them, and you get this accumulation of dirt at that point in the track and then someone doesn't go across it and goes across the dirt and get, doesn't get the traction that they were expecting and, and crashes. So it, it, it genuinely is dangerous. A, a, a safety aspect or you could just like i said extend the curb a few meters further down the track and then have it cut off in the grass start and there for the problem it, well, would be solved. well yes but i mean at some point i mean you can't also keep on making the track bigger just because the riders are trying to make the uh, uh are trying to use as much of the track as possible because uh, you know if you extend the curb they'll just extend how far they how much further uh, they can go how much further wide they can go it's all there has to i mean but we are arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of the of a pin at the moment uh it, it is it, there has to be a there has to be track limits the point is you know do we start this white line here or two meters further along or you know should it be five centimeters to the left or five centimeters to the right or three degrees more uh, more obtuse um uh, it's just that it all becomes uh, a bit academic but uh, yeah at some point you just have to make a decision and, and call it good dave surely in your case is uh, it's devils dancing on a pin isn't it not not angels <laughs> yeah, and probably. And you, you were sounding a bit Stevie Nicks there, Dave, uh, talking about <laughs> starting the white line at uh, three p.m. in the afternoon. I mean, it's a bit early for some of us. Um, okay, so that, I haven't had much sleep, so I need to I need to pick me up, mate. Okay, so moving quickly on to our winners and losers from the weekend. Obviously, part of the show where we choose the big winner and the big loser from the Italian Grand Prix. And I'm going to start with you, Mr. Adam Wheeler. Um, who was your big winner from last weekend? Winners. Um, I would like to say Moto Two, uh, purely because of the the fantastic duel uh, between the Rebel KTM AO riders and um, you know whoever Aki is dealing with in the KTM accounts department for bonus payments. Um, I'm sure that's a very interesting conversation on a weekly basis. Uh, you know, it's again. I think from six rounds, both of those riders have finished on the podium on four occasions. Uh, phenomenal results, phenomenal performances. Uh, you know, a almost a photo finish to give Remy Garden his first victory for that team. Um, a, a leap in some GP, you know, has to be inevitable in the next couple of weeks. You'd say. Um, so it's 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 all going to plan. I thought it was fantastic entertainment. Uh, like you say, Dave, it was. Uh, I mean, Joe Roberts is a contender for loser of the Grand Prix, but uh, you know it was. And also, you could say Sam Lowe's. Um, you know, who was looking very competitive as well at Michello. But uh, 
yeah, I mean, a young Spanish rookie, um, an Australian about to graduate to the Premier class. Uh, you know, I thought it was was a good good race. It, it was a cracking race, but the story about bonuses, that, that this can be a real problem because I remember being told about um, Mika Kalia when he was racing for Mark VDS. Um, that they basically signed him on a quite a low base salary and they gave uh, and they gave him a nice high bon- win bonus, um, a performance bonus, uh, thinking, well, you know, that'll be nice. It'll, be, it'll, it'll motivate him. Uh, but they ended up almost running out of money because he had a fantastic that year, year that year and he kept winning races. And they were thinking, oh, God, not anymore, please. I can't afford it. Well, it's like the situation now for, I mean, IO have one and two in Moto2 and KTM, Red Bull KTM have one, two, three in the championship in Moto3. So it's, uh, you know, it's kind of orange all around, really. It's, uh, there's, there must be some, some people looking at car showrooms, perhaps, or some nice, uh, little, uh, kind of materialistic pursuits, uh, through the summer because the results are going well. Yeah. I mean, uh, they'll probably just give Aki IO 10% of KTM. Um, I seem to remember Marco Melandri back in uh, his Guisini days, similar sort of thing. They didn't expect him to be winning races at the extent which he did, uh, leading to uh, yeah, some concerned faces in Honda who were trying to balance the books. Uh, Dave, what about you? Big winner of the Italian Grand Prix. Uh, I, uh, I'm going to be incredibly lazy and just say Fabio Quartararo because um, the way he won... Uh, the, the confidence he already has, uh, uh, the position he has in the championship, 24 point lead is really good ahead of Joan Zarco. Um, there's no, his consistency is outstanding. He has two races coming up, uh, at, uh, Assen and Barcelona where he can pretty much expect to have a good result. That's going to leave him just in a really strong position going into the championship. Uh, and everything is going right for Fabio Quartararo. Um, there's no chance of uh, Mark Marquez, you know, pulling off, coming through and, and, and posing a challenge. Um, it really, things are looking fantastic for Quartararo right now. And he's just performing superbly under pressure in every circumstance. He's not folding. Just very, very impressive. That was slightly unoriginal, Dave, but then I'm not going to be one to talk because I'm going to choose Miguel Oliveira uh, for my winner of the weekend. I mean, coming here, I honestly thought KTM was going to be a tough one because they hadn't raced there in 2020. Um, Mugello hadn't always been a kind track uh, to them in the past before. Um, Oliveira, yes, had a fantastic record. Uh, Mugello in the the junior classes, taking his first Moto3 race win there, winning a great Moto2 race, I think, in 2018. Um, But I never foresaw second place. Got a brilliant start and managed to really just calmly deal with Joanne Mir uh, in the closing laps, despite Joanne really putting them under quite a great deal of pressure. So a massive, massive step ahead for KTM in MotoGP. And Oliveira, who has had a bit of a tough season um, so far, definitely was outshone by Brad Binder and the Doha GP, crashed out of his home Grand Prix, crashed out of the French Grand Prix, and he started to think, Ugh, this is actually not looking so good, considering the guy was talking about fighting for the championship at the start of the year. So, um, yeah, I think Oliveira has to walk away with... Uh, my big winner of the weekend, Gong, in his back pocket. And uh, briefly then, switching to the loser. Adam, your big loser of Mugello. Um, I'm going to have to point at Honda. Um, it was, a, frankly, a bizarre weekend for the HRC guys. I mean, there was the whole willy won't he continue saga for Mark Marquez, as well as the hide-and-seek tactics throughout, you know, uh, qualification and practice, which you kind of understood. 
Um, and, you know, like we said on the Paddock Note show, I think, you know, Mark is, is due some uh, credit from his peers. So they shouldn't start getting all RC and dramatic when uh, he, he's starting to follow them when he's clearly struggling as well. Uh, and he's not even in the championship chase. So, you know, um, another crash for Marquez, uh, you know, and Paulo Spargaro were in a frankly bizarre helmet livery, uh, taking 12th place. Um, you know, the whole HRC uh, contingent deciding really not to speak after the race uh, in, you know, marred with their, their results was, you know, kind of an unfortunate situation. Um, and again, you find yourself asking questions about the motorcycle, um, you know, when it's created around um, for one exceptional talent who's not able to deliver to his capabilities, then it throws even more light on the fact that the, the their technology is simply not versatile enough uh, not to be, you know, used at the extremes that MotoGP currently demands. So, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say there's crisis. I wouldn't say there's a great deal of worry at Honda, but there's certainly a lot, a lot of food for thought. So you're saying that Paul Spargro is your big loser because he was forced to wear a Minions helmet? Well, the minute he unveiled a special helmet at Mugello, you kind of think, well, you know, what are you doing? I mean, this is kind of, uh, you know, Valentino Rossi's uh, goodbye party, perhaps. I mean, I mean, what was worse, Dave, the, the Minions helmet or the Mugello? Uh, well, I think, uh, um, honestly, I think it was the Valentino Rossi helmet because, and you know how I feel about minions, um, uh, but I think a, uh, a special helmet can be charming uh, and amusing when you are winning. When you are running around at the back as pretty much an irrelevance, it loses, I don't know, it just seems all a bit pointless. I think the... Uh the worst crime that Paul Spargo committed was the, the Instagram story that one of our colleagues forwarded on. I'm not usually one to look at these things, but uh, it didn't just have the helmet. It had the Minions music. And that's something that I'll... Maybe it was TikTok, yeah. And that's something that I'll never be able to unhear. The thing as well, uh, very quickly on Paul, I'm starting to feel more and more sympathy for him because he's left a motorcycle again that's just, you know, equaled the highest top speed in MotoGP. It's shown itself to be competitive. Uh, he wanted to take that very large, shiny gauntlet to show that he could match himself against the best rider in MotoGP and the best team with the best resources. But it's, it's, it's proving to be a hard challenge. And also, maybe he was making some kind of subtle, subliminal point by wearing a Minions helmet you know maybe he is just one of the hrc minions on the payroll paul i'm just an employee as bargaro uh yes david over to you what about your big loser uh for me it has to be alex rins because he manages to crash out for the fourth time in a row but he did look slightly despondent about it this time dave yeah i mean that is the only saving grace that he actually looks upset about crashing out for a change um but then he, he was completely unwilling to take any blame for it he said yeah he didn't have the same feeling on the front uh, during the race well if you don't have the same feeling on the front perhaps you'll or not try to push it quite so hard through uh, uh you know through buccina through one of the most difficult and, and challenging and important corners uh on, on the track so yeah it alex rins is so so talented he's so fast he could easily win a motor gp championship if he had if he was just smarter about the whole thing if he could just stay on the bike 
Um, it was, it's, it's starting to look a bit silly in the same way that, I mean, Alex Rins is my loser for the same reason that Fabio Quartararo is my winner. Fabio Quartararo, he's the winner, not just this weekend, but, you know, going forward, he is looking in such a strong position. Alex Rins is starting to look forlorn, frankly. He's starting to look lost. Um, and he just keeps making the same mistake over and over and over again, and you cannot do that. But he did sort of waggle a verbal finger at Suzuki by saying the front-end issues have to be sorted out. Um, he didn't really seem to be looking in his own direction for that. So maybe there is some underlying issue there that you know he hasn't spoken about much at all and, and really just has, has to be rectified. But Joanne Mir is making the motorcycle work. Yeah, I was going to say, Juan Mir, you know, for, for a bike with uh, with front-end issues, uh, Juan Mir certainly seems to manage to finish third and uh, on the podium with it. Um, and it, Juan Mir had a really strong weekend, you know, just um, uh, uh, just they seem to be making progress there. The, they still need, they need the rear start, uh, uh, start device, which hasn't turned up yet. The, the problem doesn't seem to be with Suzuki. The problem seems to be specifically with Alex Rins. And now it's all set up for Neil to announce his uh, Valentino Rossi loser status and, you know, the, the maybe the last Mugello as a rider. <laughs> Am I correct, Neil? You're not correct, Adam. No, um, sadly, because I think, you know, Rossi's race wasn't as bad as free practice might have indicated it could have been. Um, but, yeah, I think I'm going to have to go with uh, Maverick Vinales just because, uh, well, I tipped him coming Hang into the Hang on a race. minute. Is this the rider that you tipped to win? In the preview show, dear listener, please do not uh, listen to any of our predictions for Catalonia uh, this, this week. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that is the first thing. The second thing was how he basically came apart at the seams in qualifying when Mark was there. He didn't have a plan B. He wasn't able to adapt to the situation and he lost his head on his final qualifying lap. We know that when Maverick qualifies outside the top 10, then, you know, there's no point really even thinking of him as a contender for the top six and uh yeah um his explanation after the race was just kind of puzzling um he kind of talked about uh having a bad feeling with the front medium tire uh but you know in fp1 the soft medium or the soft front tire was excellent so why didn't we use the soft and it's just kind of this sort of exasperating yeah it doesn't really seem to ever be able to going in circles yeah, be able to put his finger on what's going on. It's like, this is your seventh season in MotoGP, your fifth with Movistar Yamaha. And these kind of listless performances are still commonplace at a track where, frankly, you should be performing a lot better. Um, and his teammate, you know, 17 seconds up the road, that must be quite sobering um, for maybe, Maverick. So. Maybe that's his problem now. He still thinks he's riding for Movistar Yamaha instead of Monster Energy Yamaha. <laughs> <laughs> that might well be the case, Adam. And thank you very much for picking picking up on that. <laughs> yes, just like to point out to any listeners in kind of uh, petty retribution that uh, after warm up on Sunday morning, Adam sent us all a message saying Miller is going to piss this race. So uh, you know you don't have uh, you don't have clean hands in this, Miller, uh, Adam. So. <laughs> as i said listener please don't listen to any of our predictions we know a little bit about something but a lot about nothing um i just would like to ask you guys if you can remember who i uh, predicted to win well, was about five riders wasn't it so that brings us it. to the end of this week's paddock pass podcast <laughs> 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 thanks very much for your your continued uh, help your continued listening um my name is neil morrison um adam thank you very much for joining us uh, today 
Wait, don't we have to do predictions for the Grand Prix? Um, no, I don't think so. We're a matter of hours away from gathering in the paddock again for round seven. <laughs> don't remind me. <laughs> Please, we've still got a, a huge list of things to, to get finished and written up before uh, before this weekend. So uh, let's just keep it focused on Magello for the time being. Thank you very much, Mr. David Emmett. Thank you. Uh, Fabio Quartararo is going to win in Barcelona. Uh, Joanne Mir is going to win in Barcelona. Okay, and I think we can say that uh, we'll have a World Superbike show this week. Steve English and Gordon Ritchie bringing you the lowdown from the Estoril World Superbike round there. Jonathan Ray doing the business again. Unbelievable stuff from him. And uh, we will have a Moto2 and Moto3 roundup uh, a little bit later this week also. That'll be coming out uh, certainly before uh, this weekend at the uh, Barcelona Grand Prix. So yes, dear listener, thank you as well for your ongoing support. This has been the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Fly Racing. We'll be back with another episode soon. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Libertines. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. And Mr. Adam Wheeler from On Track Off Road to King. Oh, shit. Okay. A bit more, a bit more verve now, a bit more verve.